Welcome to On the Porch, the podcast. Thanks for joining us. Carter Sickles is the author of the new novel, The Prettiest Star, which is getting rave reviews from the likes of Entertainment Weekly, Logo TV, Book Riot, O, The Oprah Magazine. He is also the author of The Evening Hour, a novel that came out in 2012 and has now been made into a film that will be released soon. He's a native of Ohio and now lives in Lexington and teaches at Eastern Kentucky University. Thanks for being on the porch with us, Carter. Thanks, Silas. It's so great to be here. Well, why don't you tell our listeners about The Prettiest Star? What do you want them to know about it? Okay. Um, Well, The Prettiest Star uh, is set in 1986, and it's about Brian Jackson, who's a young gay man who's been diagnosed um, with AIDS. And he's been living in New York since he was 18. Um, So now with many of his friends dead from AIDS and his boyfriend has died, he decides to return to the small town where he grew up in Appalachia, Ohio. And the novel is looking at the AIDS crisis of the 80s, but through this one small town in rural America and this one family. Um, And, you know, this was a time when I think by 86, 40,000 people had died of AIDS and most people... Uh, in America, viewed people with AIDS and viewed gay men as expendable or as degenerates, as sinners. So when Brian comes back home, his parents um, insist on keeping his sexuality and his HIV status a secret. And that secrecy and shame really weighs on Brian, but it also kind of weighs on the family and starts to tear them apart. Um, the novel is told in multiple points of view. So we have Brian's little sister, Jess, who's 14, and their mother, Sharon, and then Brian. And Brian's sections are all in the form of these video diaries where he uh, decides to record his, his last summer. Mm-hmm. And so I think it's a book, you know, about the shame and silence of that time, but also about family and home and, and redemption and love. And the title is... Uh from a David Bowie song, Why That Song? It is. You know, I I didn't have that title when I first, um, in earlier drafts, but at some point, as Bowie became more important figure in the novel, um, because he's really Brian's sort of idol when he's younger and kind of represents just this kind of um, freedom and excitement and electricity so I, would, I just made a list of all his songs, and I was sort of uh, going through each of them and figuring out, you know, how that would work as a title or what, how that would resonate. And then my, my husband actually came up with The Prettiest Star. It was, it's not one of his most um, famous songs, and it wasn't one I was very familiar with. And so when I listened to it, I thought um, it's such a beautiful song, and I thought it um, captured what I hope is kind of the tenderness of the novel. Mm-hmm. Well, one thing I love about the novel is uh, the way that you take us to this time period so vividly. And, um, of, of course, one way you do that is through the music, the the, mm-hmm. the mentions of songs and things like that. But what other things did you do to immerse us in, in the 1980s? Well, yeah, the music was an important part of it. I mean, I was uh, a teenager during the 80s, and I remember, you know, MTV and uh, listening to The Countdown every Sunday and uh, 
listening to my Walkman and mixed tapes. So I listened to a lot of music, but I also went back to that time and watched some clips of TV shows that I used to watch, or um, I found, I ordered these catalogs, the Sears and JCPenney's catalogs, mm-hmm. um, which were such a big part of my childhood, to just kind of go back to that time of um, what clothes looked like then, um, you know, the TVs, <laughs> big square box TVs, the digital alarm clocks, you know, um, so that was sort of a fun because so much of the research was sort of heavy and kind of heartbreaking that I was doing about the AIDS epidemic. So the research that I was doing about kind of um, what was going on in pop culture in the 80s and what were the clothes like, you know, also gave right. me, I thought it was fun to do. It brought a little bit of lightheartedness to the research part of it. Exactly. I, and also, I mean, you write in the novel about the AIDS crisis that never becomes maudlin, you know, and I think mm-hmm. I think one reason is because of the way that you are using those pop culture references and all that. It it makes it so real and and gives it an element of joy in a way that mm-hmm. does that make sense? I wanted to kind of, you know, I knew I was. I had to sort of balance the story that is a really hard um, story and a sad story in many ways um, about the AIDS crisis and about um, someone who is at the end of their life, a very young and short life. And I, I didn't want it to, I guess I just wanted to be aware of that mm-hmm. and resist it from becoming too sentimental right. um, or, or heavy handed you know, and so one way was right, kind of the the setting and the world that I was creating, but also I hope that the characters too can help because they're complicated. Right. Um, resist that. Yeah, you know, I think this is an important book um, for lots of reasons, but mainly the main thing that comes to mind for me is I think so often when we when we see stories about AIDS, especially in film, but also in literature. They're always set in New York or San Francisco, you know, and mm-hmm. so here's a book that is set in rural America. And um, I mean, for one thing, it's just uh, rare to see uh, queer characters in a rural place, period, right? Or a small town. Mm-hmm. We're so used to mm-hmm. seeing them in, you know, city settings. Um, was that something like, did, I mean, was that something you had in mind that? that that hadn't been done that many times? Is it important to you to show this portrait of rural America? Why did you set it there? Yeah, it was important for me. I mean, I grew up in a very small town, and I never um, remember reading anything, you know, where there was a queer character. And even when I was older um, and reading more LGBTQ literature, um, it was very rare to find you know, a story that included that this intersection of rural space and then queer um, character. Mm-hmm. So I was definitely thinking um, about that. And then you're right. I mean, I think it's for good reason that so much of the AIDS literature takes place in these kind of cities that were hit so hard by the AIDS epidemic, New York and San Francisco, but there um, were, men who were living in those small towns who came back uh, or who were living in those cities who came back to their small towns right. 
Um, but there are also people in rural America who um, experienced, you know, the AIDS epidemic. Uh, and that was, a, I think, a part of the epidemic that was um, just so invisible, you know. Um, and so I wanted to, to write about that. And I, there's a book um, called My Own Country by Abraham Vergesi right. about his time um, in eastern Tennessee as an infectious disease doctor and the AIDS epidemic really um, ravaging parts of that area in the 80s and 90s. Mm-hmm. And, you know, just something nobody really talked about. Yeah, that's the only other book I could think of that was set in Appalachia about the AIDS epidemic. And that's a nonfiction book, right? I believe, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 And an- um, another favorite novel of mine is uh, The Blackwater Lightship by Combe to yes. Bean. But of course, that's set in Ireland and it is about, you know, rural Irish people uh, going through this. But it's right. just so rare to see this in American literature. So I'm thankful to you for writing it. Thank you. And also, I will say, um, Fenton Johnson's book, Scissors, yes. Paper, Rock, there yes. is a part um, where the, the man comes back, where the character comes back to his home in Kentucky, and he's HIV positive, I believe. Yes. Fenton Johnson is uh, was you know truly a pioneer in literature of this kind, and he's from Kentucky, yeah. near, near Bardstown, just such a beautiful writer. Well, are you the kind of writer that sort of lives within the skins of your main characters when you're working on a novel? I mean, do you sort of walk through the world looking at everything from their point of view? I mean, what is your, I know it's such a lame question, what is your process like? But I guess that's what I'm asking. Yeah, I mean, I I think that I, it takes me a while to figure out who the characters are. I'm not someone that can start with sort of an outline of the characters and a list of all their likes and dislikes. I will figure that out later, but in the beginning, um, you know, I, I have to sort of write them in scenes and kind of just do some free writing with them to start to, and start to hear their voices. Um, and I spent, you know, a few years, uh, probably four, five years with these characters. Um, so I felt like I got to know them more and more as, um, more I wrote about them. I would keep notebooks um, that were designated to, for the novel, and I would write about the characters in those um, notebooks. And sometimes I would write just um, sort of almost free writing, or um, maybe the character would write a secret or a confession or something that that kind of gave me some insight into them. And that didn't necessarily show up, you know, in scenes in the pages of the novel. But it was just a way for me to get closer to them, mm-hmm. understand them with more depth, yes. right? And then, but I do, I think with Jess, who's the sister, I started thinking about what TV shows she would watch. And I, I thought about her watching these um, nature specials on PBS, and that grew into her love for whales. And that really gave me a way to kind of, think about her character and to get into her voice and, and understand kind of how she sees the world. So I would look at um, National Geographic magazines, you know, from that mm-hmm. same year and think about, well, these were the same magazines she would look at, um, or this might be the same book that she looked at. Um, 
do that. Yeah, that kind of helps me get a sense of how to step into their shoes. Right. Yeah. I, reading a book like this, I mean, you know, in in my lifetime, it feels very recent, 1986, right? But at the same time, you're, mm-hmm. you're reading it and you realize how different things are. And like you mentioned, uh, looking through the catalogs, I used to spend a lot of time looking at that J.C. Penney and Sears catalog. Yeah. We call it the wish book, you know, and uh-huh. I would mark everything I wanted for Christmas in it and uh-huh. and all that. And and then looking through magazines and, you know, spending time mm-hmm. in your room listening to records and all that. I just love the way you take mm-hmm. us into that world. But the um, the character I found most interesting is, um, is Brian's mother. Um, mm-hmm. So... I imagine she's probably the character that is most unlike you, right? Would you say? Right. And yeah. so can yeah. you talk about how that is to write a character that's so, you know, different from, from yourself? Yeah. I mean, that's something I, I love about fiction is being able to, to step into these other characters' shoes who have very different experiences from myself or have different viewpoints from me. Um, I started with Jess and Brian. I I thought it would be more of a sibling story when I first started. And, um, and it it is a part of that, but um, maybe a few months in, I I tried to write from Sharon's point of view and and that kind of opened the novel up to me in a new way. I mean, there's more um, conflict, you know, when Sharon comes into the story um, because she loves her son and, and she thinks she loves her son, his, unconditionally, but she has a lot of conditions and she doesn't uh, really know him. And so for her character, um, I thought there was the most potential for a character to really grow and evolve and and make mistakes and um, be flawed in a way that I, I felt like was a little bit different for Brian. I mean, he's kind of at the end of his life and he understands who he is and he's trying to sort of reconcile with his family. But Sharon's a character that really has, I think the furthest to kind of go and um, face herself and and her mistakes. Well, why don't you read us a little bit of it? Whose point of view is, is this excerpt from? Um, I'm going to read from Brian's point of view. Great. Um, So this is about halfway through the book. And um, at this point, a lot of his family has figured out his HIV status and, you know, which his parents have been trying to keep a secret. And as I said, his sections are set up as these sort of video diaries. And then this one, he's outside and he's just recording um, outside his parents' house. And I don't think there's much need to know. You'll hear some names, but Jess is his little sister. Annie's his best friend and, and Sean was his boyfriend. July 16th. 1986. Change of scenery. Here is the creek behind my parents' house. I used to spend hours out here watching the minnows, the birds. This is an osage orange tree. When you peel back the bark, it bleeds orange. Gus and I used to rub our face, it on our faces, pretending to be warrior Indians. Gus knows, Pam knows, Josh Clay, and my grandmother, and Jess, and uncles, and aunts, and cousins. All of them know now. But nobody has said anything to me except my grandmother, and only indirectly. You're going to be fine, she said. Everything will be okay. When I was a kid, after a hard rain, the creek would rise, and you could swim in it. 
I miss swimming. I was good at it. Jess, terrified, used to cling to me. Trust the water, I'd tell her. One day I let go of her and she floated out, paddling her hands and feet. You're swimming, I yelled. It was beautiful to watch. In the city, I hardly ever swam, except a few times we went to Coney Island, Sean and Annie and me. It was dirty and polluted, but I didn't care. The first time waves knocked me over and then lifted me back up, I felt exalted to the point of tears. I always thought I'd be the one to take Jess to the ocean for the first time. I wanted to do that, give her that experience, that pure animalistic joy. I grew up believing in God. It wasn't something I ever questioned in Chester. But as a teenager, I started to have my doubts. I don't know what I believe anymore. It's hard to believe when we're all dying and everyone's telling you this is part of God's plan. I prayed Sean wouldn't die. I prayed I wasn't infected. It wasn't really prayer, just words, desperate hope. Sean wanted me to bring him here, to show him the places that made me and undid me, the hills and trees and dirt. What would people have said? Would they have guessed we were boyfriends? I grew up not knowing a single gay person. I also didn't know anyone who wasn't white. I tried to explain this to Sean, but he wasn't afraid. What are they going to do, he asked. Stare? Kill me? Well, I'm not going to hide. What would it have been like him and me in the woods, under the branches of a sweet gum, yellow stars falling around us? I'd make him a crown of bittersweet his strong hands holding me down, his hot mouth on mine, all of it happening out here in the dirt and leaves of the place I tried so hard to escape. You're listening to WUKY 91.3 FM. This is Silas House. Uh, We're on the porch, and we are talking to Carter Sickles about his new book, The Prettiest Star. Now, Carter, uh, your first novel, The Evening Hour, came out in 2012 and has been made into a film starring Lily Taylor and Philip Edinger. And um, I guess that that's been, uh, the whole film industry has been held up by the pandemic, but um, do you have yeah. any idea about the release or anything yet? I don't. Um, you know, it premiered at Sundance uh, 2020, and that was, in, that was in February, or the end of January. Mm-hmm. So it was really before... Um, the coronavirus and the pandemic. So I was able to go and that was um, just so much fun. But um, yeah, I think everything's kind of slowed down or is on hold right now. Yes. So, uh, yeah. Well, you were on the set quite a bit, weren't you? You, you were part of the production it was. and it was filmed in Kentucky, yeah. right? Yes, it was. It was filmed in Harlem. Um, and, it, and uh, it was about a six to eight week um, production. So I, drove down um, a few times and I would stay for long weekends and get to go on set. Um, and it was just a fantastic experience. Um, Robert Guype, uh, you know, the author, he lives in Harlem. So he helped um, kind of connect Braden, and the director with some community members. And um, I felt, I mean, I'm excited for people to see it. Uh, it's, you know, it's different from the book in some ways. Um, but they kept the the characters, and I think they really captured the spirit of the place and the beauty of it in the film. And and uh, I know you have a cameo in the film. Did you did you end up? <laughs> are you in the final cut? I am. I did see myself in, <laughs> in that. Um, I am in a, a diner. I'm sitting right behind Lily Taylor, so that was a lot of fun. And 
kind of my excitement. Yes. It's kind of a dream for me. I love Lily Taylor. Me too. (laughs) One of my favorites all time. Well, a lot of writers I know tell me that they've struggled to focus during the pandemic. Have have you been writing at all? Mm, Well, I've been busy with teaching too, but um, I've been editing a little bit, you know, some ideas for essays and stories that I've had. Um, Just kind of been working with working on that. I haven't written anything new yet. Yeah, I I think probably most people don't know that when you have a a book coming out, your life gets taken over with having to write sort of essays and things of that nature to promote the book. And so, Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, and the book has just been getting wonderful buzz all over the place, getting a lot of attention. The book cover is is beautiful, and um, mm-hmm. I, I, I'm hoping that everybody out there will will look for the prettiest star. It is a really lovely and important novel, and um, I I can't recommend it highly enough. Are you already thinking about your next novel? I do have um, pages that I've written, but it just feels uh, it, it's still very early in the stages of it. Um, but yeah, I think um, it's going to be set partly in Portland, Oregon, and partly in uh, Kentucky. Hmm. I I love it when a novel has two places that are so different, you know, and they can sort of be in, in conflict right. in a way that characters can be in conflict. So I think yeah, that, that's, that's I haven't not... done that before, so I'm kind of excited about right. working with two settings. Yeah. Well, our entire episode today is a celebration of The Prettiest Star because uh, all the music that you've been hearing so far is is music that's uh, referenced in the book or is of at least of the time period of 1986. Thanks for joining us to talk a little bit about it, and uh, I, I will look forward to seeing it in the hands of many, many people. Thank you, Silas. It's really great to be here, and thank you for having me on. And, uh, thank you. You have a good one. Thanks for listening to the podcast of On the Porch. I'm your host, Silas House. This episode was engineered and produced by DeBron Thomas at the studios of WUKY 91.3 FM in Lexington, Kentucky. We are listener-supported radio, and we thank you for joining us.